It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. More than a quarter of cities and counties across America say they have fended off an attack on their essential computer networks. Hospitals, city halls, and transit hubs have all been crippled by sophisticated ransomware attacks. Cybercrime has really become a way of life and connected to everything we do and really every crime we see. At what point does this ransomware come to our phones? I think it's already on the doorstep for that. Last year, more Americans died of drug overdoses than in the entire Vietnam War. Who is responsible for the opioid epidemic affecting almost every community? Big Pharma or the doctors prescribing the pills? Tonight, an investigation into both, beginning with this doctor we found in a state prison. I see myself as a healer. Doctor, you prescribed a thousand opioid pills to a pregnant woman. I would like to stop. Tim Green was a fearsome defender in the NFL who became a best-selling author. But he's on 60 Minutes tonight to reveal a secret he can no longer hide. He has ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. We first interviewed Green in 1996, and he seemed to believe this day might come. He said, I think guys would be willing to take 
10, 20 years off the end of their lives in order to get out there on Sunday and play. I don't think that the, the consideration of your physical well-being in the future is in the forefront of any NFL player's mind. I stand by that. You don't have any regrets? No. No. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. 22 towns, counties, and police departments in Texas are recovering after their computer systems were taken hostage just over a week ago. The state of Texas says the attacks, which happened simultaneously, were ransomware, and the FBI is investigating. Ransomware locks up a victim's files until money is paid or the users find another way to recover their data. More and more, critical public service networks are the targets. Before Texas, the city governments of Newark, Atlanta, and Baltimore were hit, and San Francisco's Transit Authority, the Colorado Department of Transportation, and Cleveland's airport. As we first reported in May, 26% of cities and counties say they fend off an attack on their networks every hour. Perhaps even worse, dozens of hospitals have been held hostage all across the country. In January 2018, the night shift at Hancock Regional Hospital watched its computers crash with deepest apologies. The 100-bed facility in the suburbs of Indianapolis got its CEO, Steve Long, out of bed. We have never been through this before, and it's something that I read in the journals, and I say, oh, those poor folks, I'm glad that's never going to happen to us. But when you come in and you see that the files on your computer have been renamed, and all of the files were renamed either we apologize for files or we're sorry. And there was a moment when I thought, well, maybe they're not so bad. They said they were sorry. But in fact, they had encrypted every file that we had on our computers and on the network. Well, the ER, as we've said, still had... Long told 911 to divert emergency patients to a hospital 20 miles away. His staff turned to pen and paper. Nothing electronic could be trusted. This is a ransomware, so this is a virus that has gotten into the computer system. Would it have the ability to jump to a piece of clinical equipment? Could it jump to an IV pump? Could it jump to a a ventilator? We needed a little time just to make sure about that. But time was a luxury not offered in the ransom demand. Your network has been encrypted. If you would like to purchase the decryption keys, you have seven days to do so, or your network files will be permanently deleted. 
and then it gave us the the amount that we would need to pay to get that back. And that came to about fifty-five thousand dollars. That was the same price demanded of the city of Leeds, Alabama, three weeks after Hancock Hospital. Mayor David Miller was surprised his town of 12,000 would be a target. Not much to notice in Leeds, at least not since Charles Barkley graduated from the high school. I didn't know that this malware attack was actually a ransomware attack. Uh, As soon as we found that out, that took it to a little different level. How do you mean? Well, it was going to cost us some money. Like the hospital, the city of Leeds was cast back into the age of paper. No email, no access to its personnel files or financial systems. Can all companies and local governments expect to be attacked? I think everyone should expect to be attacked. The FBI's Mike Chrisman says cyber crooks know governments and hospitals are likely to pay because they can't afford not to. Until his recent promotion, Chrisman was in charge of the FBI's cyber crime unit. You're waiting for the day that somebody says we have the 911 system held hostage in a major city and we need $10 million today. I hope that day never comes, but I think we should prepare um, for that possibility. Chrisman says in 2017, 1,700 successful ransomware attacks were reported, but he figures that's less than half. Most businesses, he says, would rather pay than admit they were hacked. I'm aware of one ransomware variant that affected all 50 states that had uh, some $30 million in losses and over $6 million in ransom payments. Um, I would tell you that the losses are very significant and easily approach $100 million or more just in the United States. That ransomware variant he's talking about is the one that held Hancock Hospital hostage. It's called SamSam, after one of its file names. Experts told Steve Long SamSam is unbreakable. There was nothing that we could do to unlock those files. Our only choice was to wipe the system and hope that we had backups or to purchase the decryption keys. To pay the ransom. Indeed, that is exactly what that means. But SamSam had infected the hospital's backup files. The FBI advised Long not to pay, but after two days, after his staff filled out 10,000 pieces of paper, he paid the ransom. The crooks demanded digital money, known as Bitcoin. Ransomware is possible only because Bitcoin is so difficult to trace. Mayor Miller held out two weeks before he paid his Bitcoin ransom after a little bargaining. I just had to grit my teeth and realize that this was a business decision, and that was the way to do it. So they asked for 60 and you paid 8 How did you get there? Well, I got a degree in finance. <laughs> Actually, uh, our uh, city inspector and our city clerk let them know that, hey, you're dealing with a very small town here. That's a lot of money to us, and uh, uh, we think we can scrape together $8,000. The thieves were honorable in Leeds, at Hancock Hospital, and in many cases, the ransom buys decryption keys that actually work. The crooks need credibility to keep the ransoms flowing. Did you ever find out? Never. Who they were or where they were? No. Wouldn't you just love to know? Wouldn't I love to know? 
Leads may have been hit by one of the many ransomware variations that simply scan the Internet blindly, looking for vulnerable networks wherever they may be. How many targets do they attack at a time? You could conservatively say in the thousands to tens of thousands. Tom Pace is vice president of BlackBerry Silence, a leading security firm. So this isn't a crook sitting in front of a desktop, breaking a sweat, trying to break into somebody's system. This is something they unleash that's automated, and they sit back and drink coffee until they get the results. That certainly uh, appears to be the rule, not the exception. Making the coffee may be the hard part. Pace showed us a website that offers ransomware for rent. An attacker can use one of many illicit products here, and the website takes a cut if ransom is paid. And something else that's interesting here is they actually provide you with basically a chat room where you can ask questions to the people who maintain this architecture for you. Frequently asked questions for criminals. Exactly. Tom Pace logged on to the site and used it to encrypt a network of his own. So all of the files that are on this system have now been successfully encrypted. So this took you just slightly over five minutes and you didn't write a single line of code. Correct. Off the shelf. Off the shelf. Ready to go. Pace told us ransoms are typically modest, like at Hancock Hospital or Leeds, Alabama, 50,000 or so. If you're asking for millions from everybody, that's just, everybody doesn't have millions to pay, right? So finding that sweet spot and sticking to it has worked well. And that's why the same ransom was asked of little Leeds, Alabama and great big Atlanta. Correct. The city of Atlanta has experienced a ransomware cyber attack. Three weeks after Leeds, Sam Sam slipped into Atlanta City Hall. Howard Shook is a councilman and chair of the finance committee. 911 was up and running, but for a while the police did not have the ability to do computer checks on license plates and, you know, cars they were pulling up on and that kind of thing, which was a concern. What else crashed? The court system went down, which was a major inconvenience for the thousands of people cycling through municipal court. Sam Sam demanded $50,000, but Atlanta refused to pay. Instead, the city spent $20 million to recover on its own. It took months, and seven years of police dash cam video was never recovered. Why did you think paying was a bad idea? At first it was just instinctive. I mean, if you're being violated, I don't know why you should reward somebody for having done that. It must gall the hell out of some of your clients to pay the bad guys. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we have lots of clients who are incredibly angry. I mean, you have to imagine this is, uh, for many of them, the worst day of their professional career and sometimes their life. A day made even worse by the occasional high-end ransom. Pace told us one of his clients paid almost a million dollars. Another paid up after receiving this threat. Would it not be a shame if we leaked all of your internal data about your clients and customers? Sounds to us like a large lawsuit waiting to happen. So they're extorting them in two ways. They're extorting them by actually encrypting all of the files and then they're, then they're extorting them by threatening to also release the data. Once this transaction is completed mm-hmm. and the client gets his files back, how does he know he's not going to be attacked again? There's no way to really prove that he will not be. We try and do a really good job of making sure we reduce all the vulnerabilities and entry points, but there is no guarantee that they won't come back 
to the same organization that they just successfully impacted. Though we haven't, we haven't seen that happen uh, very often, though it has happened. Last year, the Justice Department said it unmasked Sam Sam. A grand jury indicted two Iranians, neither named Sam. The FBI says the two Iranian suspects were in it for the money, not espionage. They collected $6 million before they went quiet after the indictment. Prosecutors say the suspects are in Iran where they can't be extradited. The most threatening ransomware tends to come from countries, including Russia, that the FBI can't reach. Is cybercrime becoming to the FBI what banks were in the 1930s? I think it is. Cybercrime has really become a way of life and connected to everything we do and really every, every crime we see. And I know that by 2020, we expect to see 50 billion devices worldwide connected to the Internet. So the question becomes, at what point does this ransomware come to our phones? where some crook says, I've got your phone, send me 50 bucks. I think it's already on the doorstep for that. I think some of those devices that connect to the Internet can not only be compromised, but they can be used to facilitate other attacks under the command and control of bad actors. This can be, I have your phone, I have your car, I have your house, anything that's connected to the Internet. Absolutely. In the annals of 60 Minutes, we have rarely come across a doctor like Florida physician Barry Schultz. Prosecutors say he wantonly prescribed and sold massive quantities of highly addictive opioids. As we told you last September, Schultz was sentenced to 157 years for his role in fueling the most devastating public health crisis of the 21st century. Last year, more Americans died of drug overdoses than in the entire Vietnam War. While Schultz ended up in jail, Mallinckrodt, the pharmaceutical company that flooded the nation with tens of billions of opioid pills, paid a relatively small penalty. The question now being debated in Congress and in federal court is, who is responsible for the opioid epidemic? The doctors who prescribed the pills or the opioid manufacturers and distributors who supplied them. Dr. Barry Schultz is an inmate at Florida State Prison, where he will likely be incarcerated until the day he dies. In this, his only interview, Schultz said he wanted to go on camera to explain that he has been singled out unfairly. I'm a scapegoat. You're a scapegoat. I mean, I was one of hundreds of doctors that were prescribing medication for chronic pain. The prosecutor called you a killer. I see myself as a healer. In my mind, what I was doing was legitimate. In the early 2000s, Schultz was a pioneer on the Wild West frontier of pain treatment. Doctors, drug dealers, opioid users, and abusers were flocking to Florida, where powerful pain pills were being prescribed and dispensed by a new type of business, pain clinics. We had more pain clinics in the years 2010 and 2011. Then we had McDonald's in those years. There was one street in Broward County, Oakland Park Boulevard, that had 31 different pain clinics on the one street. 
Florida State Attorney Dave Arenberg's office prosecuted Barry Schultz. He told us pain clinics were loosely regulated medical offices where patients could pick up pills, usually for cash, few questions asked. You could get the prescription and get the drug right there on the spot, one-stop shopping. People would race down to Florida because we didn't have the same controls as other states. We fed the entire nation's addiction. This mob scene, shot on a cell phone in 2009, is inside a Florida pain clinic. Dozens of patients waiting to get their opioids. Schultz operated a clinic like this in Delray Beach, where he treated thousands of patients. How would you describe Dr. Barry Schultz? He was one of the most notorious drug dealers we had. He prescribed in egregious amount of pills to his patients. The numbers would shock the conscience. DEA records show in 2010, one patient of Dr. Schultz was prescribed nearly 17,000 of the highest potency oxycodone pills in a seven-month period. Another got more than 23,000 over eight months. That's more than 100 pills a day. Business was so good, Schultz was making more than $6,000 a day prescribing and selling opioids to his patients. The numbers of pills that you were prescribing are astronomical. Who takes that many pills and puts them into their body? What were you thinking? I was thinking that the patient was a genuine patient who had real chronic pain, whose complaints were legitimate, and that I was prescribing medication that they needed. Doctor, you prescribed a thousand opioid pills to a pregnant woman. I don't think most doctors would prescribe a thousand aspirin to a pregnant woman. I would like to stop. Would just like you to explain your your thinking. I would like to stop. Okay, this is not expect the way I expected it. Okay, it's, I believe it's unfair. What what is what is unfair, doctor? I'm just uncomfortable with with these. These charged questions. These are questions that people have. This is why you're sitting here wearing this jumpsuit. This Ultimately, he agreed to continue. He claimed some of his patients needed extremely high doses of opioids for long periods of time to alleviate severe persistent pain. And when I started treating people with chronic non-cancer pain, I felt it was unethical and discriminatory to limit the dose of medication. And if I had known that the overdose incidence had increased dramatically the way it had, I would have moderated my approach. Doctor, how could you have not known? All you had to do was pick up the paper. In 2009, more than 2,900 people died in Florida of drug overdoses, mostly from prescribed opioid pills. In one 16-month period, DEA records show Barry Schultz dispensed 800,000 opioid pills from his office pharmacy. People have become addicted to these drugs. People have died okay. because of these drugs. People in your practice died from overdoses of opioids. A person. One is enough. That monster ended my son's life. Carol Tain's son, David, went to Dr. Schultz for pain management after a car accident. 
Schultz prescribed an assortment of pain pills, even after David became addicted. In 2010, David died of an overdose of opioids prescribed by Dr. Schultz. So should Dr. Schultz have prescribed these pain pills to him? No. He didn't even examine him. He hadn't seen him in four and a half years. He just just wrote, wrote out these scripts. As far as I'm concerned, he's a murderer and, and not a doctor. He murdered my son. As he, could, he didn't need a gun. He used his pen to murder my son. Schultz says he was inspired to prescribe high doses of opioids after attending a lecture by this man, Dr. Russell Portnoy, who was the influential president of the American Pain Society. Portnoy traveled around the country giving lectures and made promotional videos like this one in 2000, touting opioids as wonder drugs, urging doctors to use them aggressively to relieve pain. The likelihood that the treatment of pain using an opioid drug, which is prescribed by a doctor, will lead to addiction is extremely low. But 10 years later, as opioid addiction exploded, Dr. Portnoy said he had been part of a broad campaign funded by pharmaceutical companies to encourage the widespread use of opioids. I gave innumerable lectures in the late 1980s and 1990s in which I said things about addiction that weren't true. He said he believed at the time he was operating in good faith and was not unduly influenced by the pharmaceutical industry. Still, he has been named in dozens of lawsuits. Dr. Russell Portnoy, he was paid by the drug companies and has said that there is no proof that these that high doses of opioids are effective in treating chronic pain. That may be true. But there's it is true. So there's no science to back up what you were doing. There's, there's only anecdotal information. I guess what I find troubling is your lack of acceptance that what you did was wrong. I don't believe it was wrong. When you're giving somebody 60 oxycodone a day, how could they not abuse it? 60 a day is a large number, I admit. That's a very large number. But if it's taken properly... How can you take 60 oxycodone a day properly? Some people need that dose. There is no scientific evidence to support that claim. With so many opioids prescribed by Schultz and other unscrupulous doctors, pills started flowing into the streets and resold for profit, what the DEA calls diversion. 66% of all the oxycodone in Florida came from just one company, Malincrot, one of the country's largest opioid suppliers. Florida State Attorney Arenberg told us between 2008 and 2012, the company flooded the state with pain pills. Malincrot sent 500 million oxycodone pills to the state of Florida, a state with a population of 20 million people. We're talking about enough pills to give every resident of Florida 25 oxycodone pills. How is that possible? I mean, you're talking about enough pills to create an entire state of addicts. Internal Justice Department documents obtained by 60 Minutes reveal that 
Quote, Mallinckrodt's own data on Barry Schultz indicated that he was purchasing large amounts of oxycodone in a suspicious pattern, indicating diversion. Yet, the company kept shipping the drugs to the distributor it knew was supplying Schultz. The company's behavior was so flagrant, it triggered a DEA investigation led by Jim Rafalski. So what role does Mallinckrodt play in this opioid crisis? They're responsible. They are responsible. Especially for the conduct in Florida. That's a big statement. How can you not be responsible? How can you walk away from 500 million pills to a geographic area like the size of Florida? And knowing at the time this was occurring, there was an opioid crisis there. That wasn't a secret. Rafalski, now an expert witness for states and municipalities suing drug companies, told us his team identified almost 44,000 orders Mallinckrodt should have reported as suspicious, which the government says the company is required to do by law. Rafalski says Mallinckrodt reported none. But when DEA investigators handed their evidence to the Justice Department, government lawyers, fearing a long, uncertain legal battle, decided not to pursue the case in court, but to settle instead. If you'd have gone after Mallinckrodt for everything you saw them doing, what would the fine have been? $2.4 billion. And the actual fine was? $35 million. The penalty amounted to less than one week of the company's annual revenue. Mallinckrodt declined to do an on-camera interview, but told us it never sold oxycodone directly to Dr. Schultz, only to distributors. In a press release, the company denied it violated any applicable laws, but said going forward it would analyze all internal data and identify suspicious sales. Now call to order. Now the pharmaceutical industry is coming under scrutiny. Last year, a congressional committee called the heads of the five leading drug distributors, the middlemen that ship the pain pills from manufacturers like Mallinckrodt to drugstores around the country. Mississippi Congressman Greg Harper asked if they were complicit in causing the drug crisis. Do you believe that the actions that you or your company took contributed to the opioid epidemic? Mr. Barrett. No, sir, I do not believe that we contributed to the opioid crisis. Dr. Mastandria. Yes. Only one of the five said yes. Now, this House committee has launched an investigation into Mallinckrodt and other drug manufacturers. The Justice Department has formed a task force targeting opioid manufacturers and distributors. You were convicted of 55 counts of drug trafficking. As for Barry Schultz, shortly after our interview, he received a final sentence, 157 years, the longest sentence of anyone so far in this opioid crisis. In football circles, Tim Green has always been known as a renaissance man. He was an all-American defensive lineman at Syracuse University and an English major who graduated magna cum laude. He spent eight years sacking quarterbacks for the Atlanta Falcons and picked up a law degree in his spare time. And during a decade in the broadcast booth for Fox Sports, he started writing books. Six became bestsellers. Then last September, the man who seemed to be able to do anything 
Senes news he could no longer hide. He is suffering from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, one of a growing number of NFL players to receive that diagnosis. His body is starting to fail, and his voice has lost its timbre. But his story is even more compelling now than it was when we first met him back in 1996 upon the publication of his football memoir, The Dark Side of the Game. You cannot go through an NFL season without doing serious damage to your body. 22 years later, Tim Green spent last fall, as he has most falls, on the football field, coaching the young Scanny Atlas Lakers. He wasn't able to march up and down the sidelines or yell out instructions the way he used to. Watch outside! But he was still out there encouraging his players, most of whom had little idea what their coach is facing. When did you first realize that there was something wrong? It was a small thing. I couldn't uh, use my nail clipper. Nail clipper? Yeah, I couldn't do that. And then it got hard to open things. Tim Green didn't make much of it then, just a few more battle scars from his days in the NFL. The first time we met him, he told us he had a lot of them. I have enough aches and pains to know that I played the game. He was three years removed from a playing career in which he roamed the field like a predator, first in college at Syracuse, and then as number 99 with the NFL's Atlanta Falcons. He was a vicious tackler and a voracious reader, a man who devoured war and peace in the locker room before going into battle. In retirement, he kept his body fit and his mind sharp by writing novels for young and old at the upstate New York home that he shared with his wife and children. But by the summer of 2016, at age 52, he finally admitted to his son Troy that he felt something was off. He was saying to me, you know, my hands, you know, it's getting hard for me to hold the weight. And I would make a joke, oh, you're getting old. Tim decided to see a prominent hand surgeon. And he looked, he said, I think you have ALS. I said, no, I don't. That same day, he went straight to Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City to meet with a neurologist. And, you know, What did he tell you? Your uh, affairs in order. He basically said that the end is near. You better get your affairs in order. Not what you wanted to hear. ALS, the three letters he didn't want to hear, stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, a rare disease that New York Yankee legend Lou Gehrig gave a name and a face to 80 years ago and that recently claimed the life of physicist Dr. Stephen Hawking. It destroys the nerves that move muscles, eventually making it impossible to walk, speak, or breathe. Tim understood that he had been given a death sentence, he also had no interest in doctors, treatments, or sympathy. I said, we're not talking about it. 
It was almost taboo. Even or even around the house, no one we wouldn't talk about it. We wouldn't address it. It was just kind of like the elephant in the room. Were you in denial? No, I knew I had her. You didn't want to waste any time thinking about it. You just wanted to live. Exactly. Most ALS patients are given two to five years to live. And Tim Green wanted to enjoy whatever time he had left with his five kids and wife of 29 years in the beautiful town of Scaniatlas, which sits at the top of one of New York's Finger Lakes. Life can never be long enough. Life can never be long enough. Few outside Tim's family knew of the diagnosis. He continued making public appearances. Tim Green and Derek Jeter. Like this one in March 2017 on CBS This Morning, alongside Derek Jeter. They were promoting their collaboration on a baseball book for middle school kids. There's so much rich uh, messages in the story. Difficult to tell that there was anything wrong with you. I could still enunciate my words more clearly. Uh, But that was a year and a half ago. Tim's condition began deteriorating in the months after that appearance. His family finally convinced him to see a neurologist in Boston. He was examined by Dr. Merit Sukovich, the director of the Healy Center for ALS at Massachusetts General Hospital. What's Tim's prognosis? He has one of the better prognoses because he has a slower form. However, everybody with ALS has a serious prognosis. It, It is today a fatal disease. And there's no cure? There's no cure today. But there are some treatments, and there's a lot of advances in science and a lot of hope for our patients. Dr. Sukovich put Green on a new treatment that can slow the progression of ALS by a third. He says he's noticed a difference. Your mood is okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No one knows exactly what causes ALS. In Tim Green's case, head trauma is a leading suspect. Scientists caution that the data linking football to the disease is not conclusive, but the NFL concussion settlement specifically covers ALS, and Tim Green believes there's a connection. How much of this do you think has to do with football? I think probably a lot, if not all. He says he lost track of the number of concussions he suffered playing football. He stopped counting after 10. I use my head on every play, every play, every snap. It was like throwing myself head first into a a concrete wall. Did you ever think about it while you were playing? No, no. He even used his head to celebrate on the field. At the time, he says no one was concerned about possible brain damage. During his NFL career in the late 80s and early 90s, preseason practices were particularly brutal. Tim's wife, Alyssa, remembers the pounding he took. His head was so swollen, he would have to put Vaseline all over his head to get his helmet on. Practice was much worse than night games. And you didn't go easy in practice? No. No, I was nuts. 
<laughs> I, uh, you seem like such a mild-mannered guy. I am. I am. But not on a football field. No, no. When we interviewed Tim Green in 1996, he addressed the violence and risks inherent in the game and seemed to believe that this day might come. You said, I think guys would be willing to take 10, 20 years off the end of their lives in order to get out there on Sunday and play. I don't think that the, the consideration of your physical well-being in the future is in the forefront of any NFL player's mind. I stand by that. I've maybe taken that much off the end of my life, maybe more. I don't know. You don't have any regrets? No. No. To fully understand, he says, you have to know what it was like being out there, doing something you dreamed of, and experiencing, even for a moment, the intensity of 60,000 people screaming for you and your teammates and feeling that energy through every pore in your body. It was as magical and wonderful as I dreamed it would be. Tim Green believes if his football career had started 30 years later, he might not be fighting for his life today. New NFL rules have drastically cut back helmet-to-helmet contact in practice, and it's penalized in games. He follows those guidelines with the youth team he coaches, limiting contact during practices. His 12-year-old son, Ty, is the team's star quarterback. Tim doesn't want him to play defense. The trophies from his NFL career fill his office, but instead of mounted heads of lions, tigers, and bears, there are pictures of the big game quarterbacks he's brought down. Joe Montana. Yeah, number 16. Yeah. 49ers. He was the king back then. Yeah. And that is Dan Marino. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Best time of your life? No. Best time of my life is right now. Right now? Yeah. Why? I have everything. Tim Green was adopted, so everything to him means family. How are you? The Greens all live in the same neighborhood, and they eat dinner together five nights a week. He works out with his sons almost every day at his home gym to keep his muscles functioning. The kids say their dad's not going to quit. He'll never give up. I say I don't think I've ever seen that in his yeah. things he does is give up. It's never he doesn't give thing. up in tic-tac-toe. He's not <laughs> yeah. I don't think about what I can't do. And you could still write. Yeah. And I can write. And, you know, that opens up a whole universe. Writing offers him an escape from his illness. He's authored 38 books overall, four since his diagnosis. He wrote the last one on his smartphone using his thumbs, all 300 pages. So this is a new book? Yeah, yeah. His thumbs no longer work that well, but his mind is just fine. He's using technology to forge ahead with book number 39. Oh, 
There's a sensor in his glasses that he can move to lock on letters on his keyboard. He then clicks on a mouse and words are formed letter by letter. How far along are you on this, this book? I'm about halfway. He's a little behind schedule, the first deadline he's ever missed. I apologize <laughs> to my editor. I think your editor understands. She did. Yeah. More scientists than ever are trying to unlock the mystery of ALS and its causes, but it's still an underfunded disease. This is kind of what the website looked like. That's why Tim and his family are starting a social media campaign called Tackle ALS to raise money for research. Current and former NFL stars Matt Ryan. Let's beat this. Von Miller. Let's beat this. And Brett Favre. Let's beat this. Have all joined the team. But Tim understands that he may not be around to see the benefits. In the time he has left, however long that may be, he's content to enjoy the power of his boat and the company of his family. He just feels blessed for who he was and what he has. People would say, Tim, God bless you. And I'd say, he already has. An update. Tim Green is still hanging in there. And he's almost finished with book number 39. I'm Steve Croft. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Tomorrow, be sure to watch CBS This Morning and the CBS Evening News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Don't miss true crime anytime you want, anywhere you go with the 48 Hours Podcast. Real crimes. Like a John Grisham novel come to life. Real lives. He pointed a gun to me and said, this is the day you die. And he shot me. Real justice. There's some questions that have to be asked and need to be answered. I'm an innocent man, and I hope the whole world can see it now. Catch the latest episodes of 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts.